This episode of CBO Speaks is brought to you by Kaufman Hall. Learn about their strategic and financial consulting services and Axiom planning software by visiting kaufmanhall.com forward slash higher education. Welcome to CBO Speaks, a podcast from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO John Walda, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is for you to gain greater insight into the challenges and rewards of the Chief Business Officer role. Find out more from today's episode at www.nakubo.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to CBO Speaks. It's great to be with you today. My name is Megan Strand, your host, and I am excited to be joined today by Don Rhodes, who is Chief Business and Finance Officer and Vice President for Administration and Finance at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Hi, Don. Hello, Megan. How are you? I'm excellent. Now that I got through your title, I, I'm feeling good about myself. <laughs> <laughs> Take a deep breath now. <laughs> Well, uh, to kick us off today, you are new to the University of Maryland. You've been there about three months, but I was hoping you could take a little bit of a step back into your career a little bit and tell us how you got to higher ed as a profession. And then maybe you could tell us how you got to the University of Maryland. Oh, my gosh. It was definitely not something that I planned. It was very much a set of circumstances that led me in this direction. I was happily working in the private sector Mm. and someone who was in the HR department at the University of Toledo in Ohio was a member of my church. And he said that there was a budget director position that was going to be open and asked me if I would be interested in applying for it. And truly, I almost didn't apply for it because my brother, who is a finance major, I'm an accounting major, he had interest in it and I was happy where I was and was not going to apply for it. And I was encouraged by my mom that if it was something I was interested in, to go ahead and do it. So I did. And the rest, they say, is history. I fell in love with higher education upon starting at the University of Toledo. And what year was that in that you, you started in higher ed? That was 1992, 24 years ago. Wow. Apparently you've liked that change since you've you've stuck around in higher ed, huh? Higher ed is just, it's a field where if you're open for growth, you just feel it in the atmosphere around you. You have students who are coming here to learn. And if you're a person who believes in continual growth and lifelong education, Higher education is the place to be. That's fantastic. Now, what did you do when you were in the private sector? Oh, gosh. I worked for Owens, Illinois, which was a container company. I worked for Champion Spark Plug. And then I went to a hospital that was, it was not for profit, but it was still, I think, it felt more like a business at the time that I was actually doing the work um, as opposed to coming to higher education. Talk a little bit about the contrast for you between the private sector and higher ed. Like what sorts of things do you feel you brought with you to higher ed that were good from the private sector? And what sorts of things are you glad that you don't have to deal with in the private sector anymore? I believe firmly that my analytical skills were developed in the private sector. The desire to learn more and to ask questions, that was developed in the private sector. I think one of the transitions for me that was difficult at first 
was just thinking about the finances of the university more by semesters or based on the academic calendar and a fiscal year that was totally different than what I'd been used to in the private sector. In the private sector, I was used to doing monthly variance analysis and being able to explain why your revenue was different and, and your expenditures. So while you're looking at your expenditures in higher ed, potentially on a monthly basis, your revenue comes in at mainly the beginning of each semester. And it's more difficult. You, there isn't a monthly, month-to-month comparison necessarily with your tuition revenue and your state appropriations. So just some logistical differences there. Logistical differences. And I think the biggest difference for me also was the shared governance model. Mm. And I think is critically important to higher education. But as you come in from a private sector and you are trying to get a decision made, Mm -hmm. that first time you're going through that process, you're sitting there wondering, why is this taking so long? How have you learned to navigate that governance structure? One, I quickly gained appreciation for the value of it. Having people have an opportunity to be heard, to be informed, is critically important to having an outcome that in some cases people may not agree with it, but they've been heard. And in other cases, people have been heard, had a chance to shape the outcome. And it's not just coming from one type of mindset. I think that has led to a better outcome in many of the decisions that I've been faced with over time. So one is actually valuing the appreciation. And I think then combining that with really creating some rigor in a process in terms of setting deadlines and planning, planning um, milestones for projects, et cetera, and making people aware of those things. Now, how did you end up at the University of Maryland? Oh, upon leaving IUPUI, I knew I wanted to be at a research institution. I knew I wanted to be in an urban environment, if at all possible. And as I went through my search process, the University of Maryland Baltimore seemed to hit on many, if not all, of the values and criteria that I had put in place for my next position. And then when I came to campus and actually had the opportunity to meet people and to meet the president, President Jay Perman, it was it was a done deal in my mind in terms of the opportunities I would have here to be able to make an impact, the team spirit and the the care that this campus takes about the community in which it lives, those were all things that were very exciting and very germane in my decision to come here. Who would you say uh, over the course of your career has served as a mentor to you as you've moved between schools or even maybe when you were entering higher ed as a profession? Can you think of how mentorship played a role in your profession, in your professional career? Several. I've I've had several mentors. And I couldn't talk about mentors without talking about Bill Decatur, who initially hired me as into my first position in higher education. And I had the opportunity to actually work for Bill two times. 
And what he allowed me to do was to get involved in things that were outside of just the budget and finance area. So I became involved in in academic discussions about um, distance education. I became involved in discussions about new student orientation programs. I worked with colleagues to figure out what we could do to provide incentives for chairs to do the hard jobs of being a chair, knowing that they would be going back to the faculty in many cases to work with their colleagues. So it's kind of hard to be the boss of your friend for that period of time as a chair. And so we worked together to put some incentives in place to hopefully um, make it a little bit easier to do. So just being able to see the whole enterprise and to work across the whole enterprise, I think has definitely helped me to be a better CBO. What sorts of things have you had the opportunity to do or will you have the opportunity to do at the University of Maryland that you never imagined you would be doing, let's say, 10 or 15 years ago? I don't know if I could say, okay, 10 years ago, I could say I wouldn't have imagined doing this. I will be able to work with University of Maryland Baltimore and others in developing our anchor institution strategy uh, for the city of Baltimore. So how can UMB as an anchor institution, meaning a big employer, uh, a lot of dollars spent every year, how can we help the community in which we live with all of that buying power and um, hiring power, etc. That sounds like a giant task. And is that something that you've already started diving into? Or is that on the roadmap to come? UMB has been involved in the process some. And I am just starting to become more involved in it. We actually have a plan, a trip plan to go to Drexel University this coming week, because they're very well known for their anchor institution strategy. So we want to go and learn more from them in terms of what they did, how they did it, what were the barriers that were in the way, how did they remove those barriers, etc. That's fantastic. So you're using Drexel as sort of a role model to learn best practices and then kind of sh- help that shape your own strategy. Correct. And I'm sure there will be others that we will examine and look at also. That sort of brings me to another point, which is has to do with innovation. So innovation is such a big part of having a strategic role and a CBO role in general. Outside of looking at other institutions that are doing similar things to what you're aspiring to do, where do you look for pockets of innovation and inspiration? Just talking to people across higher education, people here at UMB and asking my staff to think about things differently. One of the best professional development opportunities that I had was at the University of Toledo shortly after they merged. And the president brought in a consultant to help people think differently, meaning let go of old baggage, Um, perceived concepts that that can't be changed and just allow your mind to think of big, innovative type ideals. And when you free yourself up and allow yourself to do that, I think you can put some pretty exciting things in place. But it it takes an effort. It's not part of your typical day-to-day process. 
Can you think of an example where you were able able to use a process like that to come up with maybe a different outcome than you might have otherwise? At IUPUI, we had a shortage of residence halls. We didn't have a cafeteria. Hmm. We had retail operations, but we didn't have a cafeteria. And we also had a shortage of classroom space. We had a hotel that in the past had lost money. That particular year that we closed the hotel, it it actually did turn a profit. But there was also a lot of attachment to the hotel in terms of it having been there for a while and where would we send faculty members, et cetera, that might be coming in to visit us. We've always used this hotel. Well, we identified alternatives for where those people would go because there were several newly minted hotels that were very close to the campus borders. And we just said, what is the highest and best need for this facility? We were able to talk to donors who had initially given money for its purpose. And we turned that that facility, it was a hotel and conference center, we turned that facility into a multi-purpose facility that put, I believe the number was 560 new residence halls, new residential beds on campus, which meant people, students would be staying in rooms that previously had been hotel rooms. So they're much bigger Mm. than the standard size size residence hall. They had beautiful views, depending on where you were in the building of the downtown area. You had private restrooms. Um, So basically, you were staying in what was a four-star hotel. We also brought 15 new classrooms online, taking the conference center area. And we partnered with Chartwells and was able to bring a state-of-the-art dining facility online that just really blew everybody's socks away. Talk a little bit about how that thinking differently process led to all of that. Just I want to hear a little bit more about that process and, and what it means to you. I think when you think differently, you allow yourself to come up with bigger and grander plans and you don't immediately say, no, you can't do this or no, that won't work or that's going to be a problem or this is going to take forever to get done. You you put all of those things aside and you focus on the outcome and driving to that outcome. Mm. And I think that for me is what was different in that process than some others I have been involved in. Don, tell us what is most exciting about your role currently. And I know this is a new role, so it might be a little bit of a hard question, but as you were accepting the job and and looking into it, what, what sorts of things are you most excited about? I am excited that this is a huge research institution. So they easily spend $500 million a year in research activity, which for me translates into there's a lot of powerful experiments and an analysis being done that hopefully can have a positive impact, whether it's health related or social work related, and just be able to make a difference in the world. So that's hugely exciting to me. Mm -hmm. And then I think if you couple that with our community engagement the responsibility that this campus has accepted to be a member of the Baltimore city community and to adopt the West Baltimore community 
in terms of our outreach activities, that's extremely exciting because these are people that you see every day as you drive to and from work that you can have a positive impact on their lives. It's fantastic. Sounds like some very ambitious projects you've got in front of you at University of Maryland, Baltimore. What would you say, Don, is the biggest challenge that faces all CBOs today, no matter where they are in the country? I, I will stay on this soapbox for as long as I'm <laughs> able to. When we look at the business model with which we work in higher education, we have a finite number of revenue sources. We have significant fixed costs in our operation. We have just taken certain things like the number of credit hours that it takes to graduate for granted. I am very, very concerned that if we as an industry don't have the difficult and critical conversations, not only among ourselves, but even more importantly with those critics outside of higher education and come up with a sustainable business model, I am very, very afraid that the federal government will decide we're going to make changes, as has been done in the healthcare sector, and we're not going to like those changes, and we're not going to be able to respond to those changes. And therefore, our students will suffer, our research will suffer, etc. So if someone asked me the question the way you just asked, having a sustainable economic business model for higher education, I think is the biggest challenge, not only facing CBOs, but facing all of higher education. So it's not necessarily something that is unique to the CBO role. It really is the CBO's role in general higher education and shaping the future of higher education. It is more than the CBO's role because the CBO cannot fix this by themselves. Right. It takes a net, I think it's going to take a national conversation that goes across academics, CBOs, student affairs, legislators, faculty unions, um, other unions. It's, it's going to go across, it needs to be talked about across many venues to try to come up with what should the economic model for higher education look like going forward. To your knowledge, are those conversations happening at any level? And if so, where are you seeing some some promise with those conversations? I don't think those conversations are happening at the national level with all of the collective people together at the same table talking about it. Well, it sounds like a mighty large challenge that would need to be coordinated on a very large scale. But it sounds like you are somebody who's passionate about that, that might be willing to participate. And I am. And it goes back to that thinking that I was telling you about before. Mm. With that, with that under my belt, I, I think it's possible if we garner the right people and have the right leadership to bring those people to the table to have the conversation. Anything else, Dawn, that you'd like to share that I've neglected to ask you today? I guess I would say to anybody who is looking to be in the CBO role, do it because you're passionate about it. Have have the right motivation for it. It's not, don't want to sit in this seat because of the power or or anything else, the, the compensation. It really needs to come from the heart and do it because you're passionate about 
the impact and the positive difference you can make in the world. A fantastic way to end our time together today, Don. Thank you so much for being with me today and for sharing just a few of your insights about your career with us. Thank you. You can find out more about Don and today's episode by visiting the distance learning section of nakubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks in iTunes so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Dawn and myself, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of CBO Speaks. This episode of CBO Speaks is brought to you by Kaufman Hall. Learn about their strategic and financial consulting services and Axiom planning software by visiting kaufmanhall.com forward slash higher education. 